And you and I are in the middle of those two ages. And this is why he would write a letter this way. As we've seen in this letter to the Colossians, is a letter to one particular church, just like us, with the same truths that are relevant just for us. In Colossians 3, verse 5, he begins to say these things. We briefly looked at last week. We'll look at more and in more detail. Put to death, he says, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual morality and impurity, passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. The completeness of Christ distinguishes, removes all of these identities. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, one body of the church. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Putting on, taking off, is the main interplay of the concept that the Apostle Paul is wishing to relay to this church and to us. And it really is, as you said before, nothing more simply than just the idea of this suit jacket coming off and coming back on. Changing clothes. Certain types of clothes can identify people. We know that our culture is very interested in identity. Very interested in identity more than maybe ever before. But maybe not more than ever before, just differently. See, in the old days, hundreds of years ago, if not even 50 years ago, your identity was not so fluid. It was structured on society. 
you're identified as your father's son, your father's daughter. You're identified with what kind of profession or family do you come from. If you were to take up a trade or a school, it would probably be in line of what your family has done or what your family expects of you. It was much more externally defined, you could say. Your identity was something you fell into. You were born into your identity. And you had to have stronger identities with your family to fulfill what they wanted of you. And then, maybe from the 60s on, an extreme change happened. Not to say that that was always good either. Obviously, external expectations on your identity aren't necessarily always biblical or healthy. Think of extreme versions of honor culture in Japan or the caste system in India. That's definitely not gospel. It's oppressive. But, as uh, Americans, we always like to go extreme. And so what we did is we took our identity and said, forget all of that identity, I will define myself. And now, the sin of our culture is denying yourself. Do not deny who you are. Do not deny your identity. So much so that even our present language is cracking under the weight of our own inflated ego. That we don't even have a pronoun system to adjust. It's our lunacy. We went the other way. We drove it off a cliff. So, the beauty, of course, with God's word, because he made all things and he knows all things and he's a little smarter than all of us, is he understands what's true. The beauty we would find in the gospel is that it strikes right at the center of it both. Your identity is not in what he thinks of you or what she thinks of you. Your identity is not also in what you think of you. You can't be enslaved by them, and you will not even be enslaved by yourself. Because the gospel comes and says, you are a slave of Christ. All that matters is what Christ thinks of you. And since he is more loving and knowing than all others, this is good to have identity here. The beauty of what Paul is doing He's freeing this church, freeing us this morning to say, find your identity in Jesus Christ. All that matters is what God thinks about you. Thinks about you. And I use the word think intentionally. One of the famous reformers, Martin Luther, the principal reformer, his favorite book, in the whole Bible was the book of Galatians. He read it over and over again. He lectured on it for many, many years in the university that he taught. His lectures turned into a commentary on Galatians, which is still in print today and read regularly because of all of its insight and how much life he meditated on one particular book. The one phrase he falls upon in Galatians 6, 3 verse 6, says this, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
credited to him as righteousness. The word there for credited means thought. Legizomai. The word logic or speak. How God considered or credited or, or thought of Abraham. Abraham believed God and God thought of him as being righteous. That's it. That's the gospel. That is the gospel in one verse. If you had to distill it all, is that if you believe upon Jesus Christ, God thinks of you differently. He doesn't even do anything different. That is, what I mean is, in the actual world, in Colossians we read how he just said that your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden because you don't look any different than anyone else in the world. But you are different in the mind of God, how he considers you, yet not glorified, not demonstrated to be righteous as you are. All it is is a matter of God's consideration of you. That changes everything because the consideration of you is also by the one who made everything. So whatever he thinks might be pretty important. And so Martin Luther comes across this verse of this favorite book of the Bible and he comes across with a phrase in his commentary that says this, that echoed through the Reformation. And I put this before you this morning. Do you remember this phrase? In the Latin he wrote it, and it's important to remember it this way. Simul justus et peccator. Simul, simultaneous. Justus, just. Et is and. Peccator, sinner. Now that is our identity crisis. There, Luther is saying that the Christian is simultaneously just and sinner. Just and sinner. At the same time, but of course in a different way, a different sense. That is, before the face of God, As you trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you are just. You are morally right. You are pure. You are honorable. You are dignified in God's sight. Yet at the same time, unto yourself, in the reality of your daily living, you are a sinner. And you know that. I know that. We all know that. But we always say as Christians, no, but I am perfectly forgiven and just and righteous in God's sight. And the reality is that the truth is both and. You are just and you are a sinner. Romans 4, 5 says, Not to the one who works but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteous. His faith is considered as righteous. His faith makes him thought of as being righteous before God. Yet at the same time, 1 John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. Don't ever say you don't have sin, but also at the same time say you're absolutely perfectly righteous. This is the back and forth. This is our identity dilemma. And this is where Paul comes in to speak about our need for clothing, to identify ourselves appropriately. What is our primary identity? What is your primary identity? He goes on to say in John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he goes on then to say, but if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. 
How does it work that we could both be just, perfectly righteous, and yet still also be a sinner? A little further in the letter, John says this. And the world is passing away with all of its lusts. The difference is nothing more than time. In one sense, before God, you are absolutely righteous as he considers you. But that is in the mind of God. That is in his consideration of you. On your Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, you're sinning. Are you not? Do you not have to regularly repent of your sin, confess your sin, be cleansed of your sin? But that is a moving object. We are going. This world is passing away and a new world is coming. And everything in the old world is passing away with its lusts, with its desires, with its sinful temptations are being put away. And what's coming in is a world where there is no more sin, where there is no possibility of sin. And we, in between that conveyor belt of history, live in both of these realities. Now the question would be, which one do you glory in? Which one do you prize yourself in or find your identity primarily in? This is where we find Paul speaking in the book of Colossians to tell them to find their new identity in this new man. He says this, You have put off the old self, the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. The old man being put off like a garment. We talk about identity. Everything that you're particularly ashamed of when you feel uh, the pressure of the gospel being preached upon you. Everything that makes you uncomfortable or makes you feel guilty or um, darkened or dirty. It's nothing more now than a solution of simply just changing your clothes. That you are able to take off the old man with all its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the image of its creator. The, the, the language there is the new man. The ESV translates itself, but the word really is man. So put these two images together. What do you think is going on? He says, take off the old man, the old Adam, and put on the new Adam. The new man, which is being renewed in the image after its creator. Was it not the first Adam, the first man, who was made after the image of God? And here, a new world, a new creation is entering in, in which now we are a new humanity. A whole new nature, human nature, that is being renewed by that image that was once marred and corrupted at first. This is an absolute break between what is old humanity and new humanity. In a real sense, not a poetic or metaphorical sense. Notice this. It's beautiful to see this language's intention. The idea of clothing or taking clothing on and off. You find in the garden what? Adam being made at the beginning, the very beginning in Genesis. He's made and he falls from glory. And is he exposed to all his shame and nakedness? Now, the old man, the first Adam, the the, the not 2.0, the Adam 1.0, was exposed and naked, and the woman as well. His wife realized they were naked, and they clothed themselves. The word for what they clothed themselves was loincloth, a small garment, something they made with their hands. Do you realize why Paul would be talking about this? Take off the old man, put on the new. 
Take off the old man. Put on the new. Take it off. Put it on. Take it off. Put it on. Every day you have to be mortifying your sin. Every day you have to be dressing according to the nature that's been given to you in Christ. But the reason he's using this language of why your dress is so important is because first off, it identifies you as something. We know that commonly in our culture. Police officers were this. Doctors were that. People that go to work dress this way. You're put on a company uniform. There's an identity to your dress that is reflecting who you are at any moment. Now, the thing that goes all the way back from the beginning of sin entering the world is that the first man tried to dress himself. That's the first thing he did right after he sinned. Is he made a loincloth and covered his... Now, we're told. Now, this is the most beautiful thing to see. He... He covered his nakedness, we're told. He clothed himself. And then, right after he clothed himself, it says, he heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. He's already clothed himself. And he heard the sound of the presence of God in the garden. And he hid. And then you would say, why are you hiding? As God asked, Adam, where are you? His answer is, I heard of your presence in the garden, and I knew I was naked, so I hid myself. But the reality is, we know he's actually not naked. He made a loin covering for himself. But there's a certain type of clothing required to be in the presence of God. And so even with his man-made clothing that he had, it was not sufficient for him to be in the presence of God. And even though clothed, he knew he was still naked. He didn't know he was really naked until the presence of God came upon him. Even though he might have been first self-satisfied, self-righteous, perfectly happy with his little Tarzan loincloth. But then when God's holy presence came upon him, he realized that what he thought was his covering was still only his shame and nakedness. And then he approached the Lord and God said, who told you you were naked? The story of the serpent ensues. And then it ends by Us being told that God made this first man, the first humanity, a long garment. Kutoneth is the word. Different than the word used for his loincloth. It's a word for a long garment that covers from your shoulders down to your knees. And God made him a garment of skin, of of flesh. Of a dead animal. Of flesh. A garment of flesh to cover him properly. That same word is used to describe the garment the priests would wear in the temple. A garment that would cover from the shoulder to the shin. In Exodus 28 it says, These holy garments are made for Aaron for glory and for beauty. To cover him. To cover him for glory and for beauty. That he says later on that if they do not wear these garments as they approach my presence in the temple, their guilt will be upon them. 
Their shame, their nakedness will be exposed in my presence and they will die. It says in Leviticus 6 that when they left the temple, they had to take those garments off. Those were holy garments. Those garments were not to be worn outside into the dirty, filthy rest of the world that was not the divine, immediate presence of God. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Do you see why he's giving you this for your identity? Take it off. Put it on. There's a particular righteousness and clothing that comes from the righteousness and clothing of Christ, the covenant, the covering, the atonement, all the garment of flesh that he enfleshed himself in that body. That was the covering from head to toe, the perfect righteousness that you needed to approach the holy God. And anything else you make is self-righteousness that is pure nakedness in the presence of God. That nothing in us would ever be good or honorable. That it would all be evaporated under the light of his glory. And we would be as naked as Adam in the garden. That's the gospel. That's what he's saying is the need to be putting on. This garment of flesh. And so for our time, we'll look at this garment. We'll look at what has to come off. And we'll look at what has to come on. For he describes them as articles of clothing, as it were. His list is a list of vices, two sets of vices, five and five. One set is five vices, all dealing, remarkably, with sexual things. And then the other set of five vices or sins that have to come off is all the ones, and this is really where it is, all the ones that deal with disunity. Breaking people apart. Because that's what sin does. It breaks your relationship from God, severs it, and then as a result, it will sever you from everyone else around you. The extent to which you sin this way is the extent to which you yourself are more isolated. And that is um, so contrary to exactly what we're told heaven will be, what God has given us. And so we'll see. First he lays out this article of clothing that has to come off is sexual morality. The word there is porneia. This is uh, meaning any type of sexual activity that is not between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. The word particularly in the King James Version is translated as fornication. Simply just sex before marriage. I mean, that is, it's amazing that in the Christian world that someone, like, seriously, say that, pastoral counseling, like, Stop them in their tracks. They'll be like, you're not allowed to do that? Like, people that have been in the church for years, like, what are you talking about? Sex before, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, the generational differences that, that not even knowing the most simple as you're preaching through the word of God to simply just say, by the way, this is actually how it works. Like, it's one man, one woman, in marriage and marriage alone. Pornea. He says we should be taking off, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual morality. Then he says impurity. We just heard this morning, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Everything related, there's a particular, why is Paul going down the road of sexual morality? Well, every other sin a man commits outside his own body, the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. There's a particular type of degradation or or. Um, harm you bring upon yourself with sexual sins. He's going right to the heart of the matter. He, he speaks about impurity because there's a certain knowledge or awareness that sexual license makes you feel, at least at the initial stages, dirty. 
If you feel dirty, you do not want to approach the Lord. But then Isaiah comes in and says, Though your sin is like scarlet, it will be made as white as snow. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and to cleanse us. There's a cleansing in this. To, to feel clean. Do you, do you know what it's like to just change your clothes? You're working outside, or you're sweating a lot, and you take a shower and put on a nice new set of clothes. It is renewing. It is refreshing. It is helpful for your mind. It's all these simple metaphors to the reality of what truly is done with sexual sins. Passions, pathos, inordinate affections. Having, having an affection is nothing. What is your affection from and where is it going to? Affection is a transitive concept, a transitive verb. What are you affectionate toward? Do you love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates? Just because you have affection, just because you have love, doesn't make it anything. People burn with passion, burn with affection. They, they give themselves to it and they're eaten up by it. They're consumed by it. He says, put that away. Just kill it. See, the freedom of the gospel is, just kill it. You don't have to toy with it. You don't have to be tempted with it. Just destroy it. Because you've already died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Therefore, kill your passions. He speaks about evil desire. This is the word that has to do with lust or the things you are oriented to in our modern psychology. Speaking about orientation. What is it that you desire sexually? Right? That is a huge debate in our culture. The King James would define this as concupiscence. An old word that we don't use anymore. A word that means an orientation or desire that is sinful. But inside of um, the Catholic Church, for example, it's not considered a sin. The, the, this is a huge difference. We understand the gospel. The gospel is we really, really are sinners. And we are really saved only by Jesus' grace. Right? Because of that, we are free to look at the deepest and the darkest of our sins without being afraid of God's wrath. Right? If you have anything in your bones about you earning your own salvation, if you have anything in your mind that makes you think, I need to do a little bit to get this right, you will always shortchange the sin in your life. Because you're never going to want to look at it in all its blackness. In the Council of Trent, after the Reformation, after Luther came up with that phrase, simultaneously just and sinner, the Catholic Church did not like that phrase. But in the Council of Trent, they go out of their way to say concupiscence is not a sin. By that he means lust is not a sin. Only acting on your lust is a sin. Which of course is unbiblical. There's the verse. Read it for yourself. But you have to go there if you think your righteousness relies upon you. Because if it is even your desires that are sinful, we are all in a lot of trouble. That's the point. It's that bad. You cannot be saved apart from Christ. For not even just the not acting on your desires, but the desires themselves are sinful. You're free now to kill them. He speaks of another five articles of clothing. You once walked, he said, and you were living in them, in these things. They must have come off. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. No more. Sets the sexual things aside. 
And then he speaks to the church and says, Now if the glory of Jesus Christ, the gospel through all the nations, has any chance, the church needs to get rid of these things. He says the similar things to Ephesians and his other letters in various ways and various forms. But he's always going to this issue. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. These are the things that will destroy a marriage. It will destroy a family. And it will break a church apart as far as any faithful witness to Christ in the world. See, it's not just all those sins out there and all the big ones and the social issues and abortion and all the other stuff that we as Christians say. Can you believe they do that over there? That's terrible. Right in the list is, are you an angry person? Are you an angry person? If someone were to ask, what is that person like? They're very short with you. You better not cross them. Don't say things out of line. They'll cut you. They'll cut you to the side and they'll cut you up one the other. How could you claim Christ? How, how could? It has to come off. Anger, wrath. That is, that is the fruit of anger. Excessive anger uh, produces excessive punishment. That is, when it's time to exact your vengeance, you are excessive. It's not to the point of what it needs. It's the point of how it, how it offends your own pride. Right? There's a wrathful type of person that, that has to come off. That, that, that Jesus has removed all wrath of God upon your own life. How could you be wrathful with others? Not seeing this, not knowing the gospel, losing sight of it, even for a minute in which you're angry with a spouse, angry with someone in your family, angry with someone who cuts you off the road. It's, it's the idea that you would have this, this indignity, that, that someone would wrong you. And that just only means one thing. You've lost sight of what you've done to the most holy God. You've lost sight of what he has clothed. You've lost sight of that covering he's placed upon you. And what it cost his own blood to lay it on the cross. That you are offensive to him. And you deserve to die. Oh, that will humble you. That will break you. You will be the most soft, gentle person. It will come right off. Malice. Just, just harm for the sake of harm. Desiring harm. There's a certain harm in which you harm somebody for the good. And there's a malicious intent of just harming people to get them. Just because they got you. Slander. Blasphemia. And the word blasphemy. This is nothing more than just making blasphemies about other people. It is a blasphemy to lie about God. It is also just as sinful to lie about another. To ruin someone's character. To give them a false truth. To slander them or malign them so that for years even their reputation is tarnished even without them knowing it. Because whispers are being done and they have no opportunity to defend themselves. This is wickedness. When in the middle of all of our sins. Every day God could point to examples to condemn you. And none of them would be blasphemia. None of them would be a lie about you. Satan could say a thousand truths about you why you deserve nothing but his wrath. And then Jesus stands there at the right hand of the Father and speaks of your impeccable character showing his own wounds and righteousness on your behalf. 
obscene talk, that is abusive speech, the, the type of language that is just always said at the wrong time, in the wrong way, and in the wrong place. See, life and death, Proverbs 18 says, are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 11 says, the mouth of the godless destroys, but the mouth of those who has knowledge builds up. There's a certain reality that when your, when your tongue has been crucified with Christ, when all of your slanderous words and everything you've ever said in your mouth has been attributed in your mind, you've seen that upon the cross. You've seen what it's done to Jesus. You've seen where your sins have put him. That therefore you now speak so peaceably. See, without these types of clothing to come off, with all this stuff not being shed, there is no chance a church can survive. There is no chance a church can live together and be under the um, spiritual attacks of Satan, being in spiritual warfare, making a statement for various things. There is always schemes of Satan to divide and break a church apart. He's particularly giving these lists to a particular church to say, stand strong. Hold the center. Jesus Christ has forgiven you and do not do these things to one another. Particularly the idea that we go to the positive now. And he says here, instead, put these things on. This is what unites marriages, unites families, unites churches, and God forbid, even a nation. If this is what we say as Christians when we say we pray for revival and reformation, we don't particularly just pray for some revival meeting in which someone has an emotional experience. We will know if God has given us the answer to our prayers, if these particular things become evident as God pours out his spirit upon individual families, marriages, families, churches, and even a nation. Not even just being a Christian nation in the sense that America should be a Christian nation. But a nation that is Christian in culture, Christian with enough influence that the church, the church in a country has a backbone, has a voice, a prophetic power to speak to a culture and say, no, we will be this way. We will have compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Look at these things. He lists another five negatives. Now he goes to the five positives. These po five positive, not vices, but virtues. Things that should be upon us. Things that we should be dressing ourselves with. That we would have compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. Think of yourself. Are you this way? Are you a compassionate person? It's hard. It's hard in the sense of the burden of it. There's so much wrong in the world. There's so much suffering. You can't do it all. But for what God has given you, the word has to do not just the word hearts. The word really means inner parts. Compassion in the inner parts. It's, it's this type of love you have that, that turns your stomach, you see. That, like when you, maybe it's even a prayer list that just gets distributed to the church weekly and you read one of them and it's almost like, I, well, what, are we just doing this because we have to email prayer lists as a church? Or, or the entering into these prayers are, that is tragic. That is sorrowful. There's a certain godliness, the vicariousness to realize, what if that were me, right? The vicariousness of Christ is, you look at the cross and you say, that would have been me. 
right? And that kind of, when you're transformed by gospel that way, that you're able to in some way realize that Jesus for me, then all of a sudden you start seeing the world that way. My goodness, I want to enter into that with you. My, my inner parts are uneasy, particularly Michael's burden with abortion is he goes down to the abortion clinics to plead with mothers not to murder the children because that bothers him. That's not good. That, that's a burden. It's in, not, not everyone can do everything. But, but do you have any of these burdens in your life? If you do, then that means you've actually got your eyes off yourself for five minutes because of the glory of Jesus Christ and you're able to see the world the way it is and you've seen the goodness of God and the wickedness of this world and you live in the tension and your loins are turned. You are compassionate. You want to do something. Kindness, humility regarding others with greater importance than yourself. Meekness, patience. I love this one. This is so important. Something does not go your way. You are a patient person. You are slow. How long has Jesus been sanctifying you? How many times have you repented of that same sin? How many times have you said those words that you said you would never say again? How many times have you not demonstrated the glory and goodness and holiness of everything you said you were going to do in following Jesus? His kindness, his slowness, his patience with you. When you see that, do you not want to put that on? Do you not want to dress like your Savior? Do you not want to be that way with others? Are you a patient person? Does your will so important? If your will is very important, you will not function in a church. I've talked with many as a pastor particularly, one only a few weeks ago, to say, well, I can't be in a church because I'll get offended by people. The fact, the fact that you know that is good. The fact that you're not running into that is bad. You have to be offended my gosh, could you even imagine how much we have offended the Lord? We have no idea of his holiness. We have no idea of the depths of our sin. God forbid we enter into a little of that. Do you realize he's made the church this way on purpose? So that you would offend one another. Because I know within the next year, I'll have a meeting with somebody in this church about someone being offended by someone, and then I'll read this verse and say, will you leave? Will you go to the other church? Will it be another year before they offend you there? Because it takes a few years for someone to get to know you first. Always won't get offended for the first year. The second year, you'll get offended and leave. And you'll miss the sanctification that God is working in your soul. Be patient. Be in a church for 20, 30 years. Be patient. Be shaped. Be formed. Be offended. Let your toes be stepped on. That's the beauty. This clothing, if the church can be clothed this way, it is demonstrating to the world the glory of Jesus. If my people are called in my name, humble himself and pray, turn from their wicked ways, I will cleanse them. This is how it works. My people have to do it. They have to lead. And he wraps it all up by saying, closing here is the outer garment. It's a beautiful image of saying above all these things, as if we just described all these articles of clothing, it really is the final coat that comes on. Above all these, put on love, which binds it all together, belt and all, sashes it together in perfect harmony. 
That is, the idea that you would leave your house that next morning and walk out into the world enthralled by the glory of God's love and mercy upon you and looking out into the horizon, want nothing more with your life until your final breath is that you would demonstrate that love. That you would have that mentality day by day is nothing more than a meditative practice that your clothes should be like this constantly. The language is regular. Put it on, take it off. Put it on, take it off. Because it will not always be that way. Put love on every day. Meditate upon the gospel of Jesus Christ every day. Remind yourself of what love truly is. Do not be battered or scarred by the sins of this world. Be renewed by the gospel. You're supposed to be renewed in the image of its creator. You are made into a new humanity. This is our ultimate identity. Consider yourself and what really, who you are. See, are you, are you the one who has blonde hair? Brown hair, black hair, does that make you, you? No, that can change. Just like your clothes can change your identity. Your eyes, are, your, are they brown or blue? Does that, if your eyes change, do you stop being you? How tall are you now? Does that make you, you, that you're six feet? How tall were you when you were five? Were you less you when you were five, when you were only a few feet? How about year zero? In your mother's womb, were you still you? Where David says in Psalm 139, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret and woven into the depths of the earth, and my unformed substance you saw. You had none of the qualities you have today, but you were still you as far as God is concerned. What about year 200? When your eyes and your hair are dust and you're six feet under the soil from which you came, are you still you? You see the identity here of being clothed in Christ. Is that all that matters is what Christ thinks of you. Nothing else about you. It's all accidental. It can be moved and changed. See, consider yourselves have already died and you are alive with Christ hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears then you will appear with him in glory six feet under or walking on the earth it makes no difference how he considers you is how you will be so therefore are you just or are you a sinner the age-old question you are just you are more just than you are a sinner we as Christians call ourselves holy not sinners even though we happen to sin. We are Christians call ourselves children of God, even though sometimes we practice like children of Satan. We fundamentally, what God really thinks of us is we are just. Because there is a time now in which you are just and you still happen to sin. But there will be a time in which you will only be just and never able to sin. You are most fundamentally, in the mind of God, righteous. Righteous. And now we must dress like it. That's what we are called to do. Dear Father God, Lord, we take off all of our sins. Lord, we know that we shed them. We shed them off as inconsequential clothing, knowing that our identity, as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, is locked in heaven with you. For we have already died to these things. And we have already been raised with Christ. 
So Lord, we pray that you would help us to wear these types of clothing. Lord, we pray particularly in context to all this, that you would give us, Lord, we pray, compassionate hearts, that you would make us kind and humble and meek. And Lord, that we may be patient, patient to see your transformation in our lives and in the lives of those around us. As you would bring your kingdom come, Lord, we pray that you would bring your kingdom, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.